Welcome to episode 54. As always, you can find the podcast on the web at enterprisehardcorepodcast.com. There you'll find all the streaming and social media information. Make sure you give us a follow on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. On Instagram, you'll usually find like cool old flyers and information on upcoming episodes and upcoming local shows. Uh, upcoming episodes, we got Grant Johnson from Syracuse, Patrick from Moment of Truth, uh, and plenty more episodes. So just keep an eye on the Instagram and the web, uh, the website. Uh, there's also a Patreon. Uh, I'm trying to upgrade some gear to do some live episodes this year. So uh, there's some lower tiers and some higher tiers. Uh, we'll have some incentives coming soon. So uh, check that out. So yeah, this is episode 54. Uh, this is going to be kind of fun because uh, I got Greg Benoit coming back on from Rochester Hardcore History. Him and I are going to be talking with Michael Honch. And we're going to be talking about a lot of stuff uh, from like the, the 80s, which uh, Greg and I weren't really around for hardcore yet. So we'll be learning a lot of stuff too. So it should be a lot of fun. So uh, I guess we'll bring on Michael first. Uh, how's everything going for you tonight, Michael? It's great. It's a real honor to be here with you guys. Thanks for asking me to be on. Thanks, man. And how are you doing tonight, Greg? I'm pretty good, and thanks for having us, and uh, thanks for arranging both both for us to be here. This is going to be pretty cool. Michael's got some real cool stuff to talk about. Yeah, like I said, uh, the 80s, uh, we're obviously a little bit younger, so we didn't get to see a lot of that stuff. Uh, my sister went to School of the Arts uh, and graduated in 89, so she's, she went to like a couple shows, so she's familiar with some of these bands that we're going to be talking about. So I've heard a couple uh, minor stories from her, but never anything like uh, what I'm hoping to hear tonight. Um, so I guess, are you ready to uh, tell us some uh, old stories, I guess, uh, if you if your memory bank is uh, kind of full, Michael? Sure, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Rochester, New York. Um, just to skip ahead a little bit, I left Rochester on the, let me get the exact date here, June 17th, 1994. That was the day I moved to uh, DC for graduate school at University of Maryland. The reason I remember that day so well is because when I arrived here, um, my roommates were all watching the OJ Simpson uh, slow white Bronco chase on the LA freeway. And so that's how I always remember when I moved here. Um, but prior to that, I was active in the Rochester hardcore punk scene from around 85 to about 91, maybe a little after that. Um, so I don't know, where do you guys want me to start? Or do you, do you have any sort of questions or shall I sort of start with? I had a, I had a question for you because um, one of the ways I came to meet you was somebody sent to me a, a scan of a flyer for a show with Seven Seconds Youth of Today and a band that I would later find out had you were a member of, um, Nuns on Death Row. And it always just blew me away that like Youth of Today came and played and Seven Seconds came and played at a church in Brighton. Um, I, I guess I'm mostly curious about that show because that had like both, that was like peak Youth of Today kind of years. I'm, I'm curious to hear right. a little bit about, you know, how did, uh, how, you know, how, what went into coordinating a show like that? And then also just well, like, how do you start a hardcore scene when it's, you know, 1985 and you know, minor threats only been around for a few years. Right. So that's an awesome question uh, to that. I'm going to have to give a little bit of background so I can get to that show. Uh, but to uh, maybe to the, the big spoiler and all of that was youth of today didn't actually play that show. They got lost. 
uh, and didn't arrive at Our Lady of Lourdes Church in time. And I can distinctly remember being stressed out, us trying to delay things, and we just had to keep this this going. But I think maybe the thing I really want to get at is your question about how do you start a hardcore scene? And, you know, I, I think about that time and there was always such a, it was, I mean, it's so hard to compare to now where we're like overloaded with information. Back then there was like no information. You just, you'd hear little hints and snippets of things here and there. No one had this stuff. There, there was no place to find it. Um, I, I started playing guitar in about 81, 82. Uh, and I can distinctly remember like sort of being interested in harder rock. I like, like the who, uh, most of all, they, they were probably my first favorite band and, and the Beatles, of course. Um, but as I was learning to play guitar, I just wasn't happy with what I was hearing on the radio. And I can distinctly remember hearing like, like November 82, hearing Thriller on the radio. You might know Michael Jackson's Thriller, which is a record I like now. That's, it's, it's an awesome record. At the time, I didn't think it was awesome at all. It's, but that's all that, that's the kind of stuff that was sort of in the air. That or like album-oriented rock. And I would just read about bands like the Ramones, but I couldn't find this stuff anywhere. I remember calling into WCMF asking them to play, requesting the Ramones, and they never would. And God bless him, rest in peace. Uncle Raj, uh, uh, was one of the hosts there way back in the day, played a Ramones song for me. And it was like, it's the first time I ever heard them. Um, but what started to happen was um, we'd hear about things like, there used to be a bookstore on Monroe Avenue in the city called The Village Green. And I would go there there and read the magazines and the what was it it was the trouser press december 1983 january 1984 issue had a feature on the bad brains and i'm reading this and i'm like this this is exactly what i'm looking for but i know i would go into record stores and say do you have the bad brains and they're like is it a record I'd say, no, it's a tape. They're like, what the hell is that? So I somehow stumbled across a 12 inch copy of that had, um, what is it? It was the reggae song on that roar cassette. Um, I love Aja on one side and I on the other. And there was no information on the record about what speed it was at. And I'm listening to I, and I'm like, I don't know what's, and I, I play it at 33 and I'm like, this can't be right. It just sounds like, you know, people on like Thorazine. I turn it to 45 and I'm like, no one can possibly be playing this fast. But that was my first exposure to the bad brains. And I was like, yeah, this, this is it. And then my dad took a business trip to Boston and I told him, if there's a record store near where you're staying, look for the bad brains tape. And he went to Newberry Comics and scored the Roar cassette for me. And so that was kind of like my first real hardcore record. You know, I real I love the Clash, I love the Ramones, but there was something closer to felt that felt more like something that could be like my music. Like I, I don't know how to put it anything any other way than like 
everything else was the past that was cool, but I wanted to do some, I wanted to be involved with something that was happening now. And the bad brains were probably the closest thing to that. And, you know, um, as it turns out, as I met more and more people, uh, that cassette was something a lot of us really gathered around. That was, that was definitely a catalyst. The second catalyst was um, the Rochester Institute of Technology had uh, a radio, uh, um, WITR, had a hardcore show called The Disorder Show. A few of the hosts came from different parts of the country. Steve Pine came from, I believe, Connecticut. Uh, there was another dude, and I'm blanking on his name, but he played guitar in the Problem Children, no, Violent Children which was Ray Capo's first band. Ray Capo played drums. Uh, but he, and then John Hull. And John Hull grew up in DC. Um, and each of these people brought their record collections to school with them and then played them on the air. And I sort of fiddling around the dial and I can distinctly remember tuning in and all the fuzz and static on the left-hand side of the dial and hearing SSD control for the first time, hearing Decreutzen, hearing Void, Faith, Minor Threat, uh, Articles of Faith, uh, the UK Subhumans. And then all it was just like my mind was being blown with every new song. And I, again and again, I was like, this is it. So I went to high school at McQuaid Jesuit. There I met Tom Mesmer, who would go on to be the singer in Nuns on Death Row, uh, and then in several other bands with me uh, back in that time. Can, can and, I just uh, can I just yeah hit the pause button for a second because you sure. just unloaded some real cool shit right there that we should should probably like unpack some of it. Yeah, um, like I didn't I I I've, I'm familiar with the Disorder Show through the Rochester Hardcore um, Facebook page, the one that's I think like '86 through '91. Um, yeah. and for people who are interested, I think somebody went back and digitized episodes. That, of that show that you can find on YouTube and they're linked on that page. So if there's people who want to hear that for themselves, there's, uh, there, there are links to that um, on that Facebook page. Um, I think it's really cool. I didn't know that, uh, uh, that someone was a host on that show who, who you know, was in a band with Ray Capo. So it's, it seems like that one show, though, had like a pretty, pretty wide net of, of a, 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 what was going on with like Ray Capo in New York City and what was going on around that time or just before that time in DC. Yep. You know, and um, I have an old back issue of Maximum Rock and Roll from 85, where Steve Pine wrote a scene report about Rochester and sort of said, basically said, there's not a whole lot going on here. There's some sort of things in the punk new wave uh, end of things uh, that's pretty cool, um, but nothing that really like hardcore punk. But it kind of put Rochester on the map because that was, again, much like Black Flag touring the country, Flipside and Maximum Rock and Roll were two magazines that kind of that's how you learned about stuff. And I, whether it was Steve or someone else, somebody told there was a record store on Monroe Avenue called Record Time and told them to start, ask them to start carrying Maximum Rock and Roll. And I went there once every month. I would go there for the new issue. I was just, again, my mind blown. I started sending away for music. Um, 
I remember uh, Carl and Eddie from and Pat from Hunger Artist telling me that Lakeshore Record Exchange, when it was on Lake Avenue, was a place that also it was it was mainly known as a, a metal stronghold back then. That's what we called. You know, that's huh. it. Just had a lot of heavy metal, but it also had some hardcore. And like I had a friend who had gone there and he bought the Black Flag TV Party uh, single. And he kind of liked the novelty, ace, the, you know, the, the sing-along A-side. But I heard the B-side of that with, what is it, I've Got to Run and My Rules. I was like, fuck, yes, this. Uh, and again, that, that might be my favorite, some of my very favorite hardcore music period, the, the B-side to the TV party record. Um, anyway, Steve Pine writing up that scene report in uh, Maximum Rock and Roll, I think was one of the things that started putting Rochester on the map as a place for bands to go. I think the second thing that happened was Charles Bennington, who had played in some DC bands, the Blood Bats uh, and Bloody Mannequin Orchestra. Uh, uh, and his bandmate and bandmate in both of those bands were Colin Sears and Roger Marbury from Dag Nasty. And I'm not sure what his involvement was, but I think he connected some people here in Rochester to those guys. And lo and behold, Beefeater and Dag Nasty played here. And this was the first lineup of Dag Nasty with Sean Brown singing. Um, I missed that show because I got grounded. Um, <laughs> you know, high school kid problems. We were obsessed with the disorder show uh i somehow and i don't remember how tom and i met the other two guys tim masick on drums uh jeff sutherland on bass and sean hammond who was we had two vocalists in in nuns on death row those guys all went to brighton high school somehow we all met and started practicing uh at jeff's house we would go to the pittsford plaza pittsford plaza wegman's and get like bulk food and just get loaded up on sugar and like i can remember distinctly us being like how do you write a song i don't know how to write a song but just try doing some covers and just trying and wanting to play faster and faster and i think if i can sort of like encapsulate what hardcore was like in that earliest moment there we had recorded uh, a, a song in the basement uh, at brand practice Tom went to the WITR studios with that cassette and showed up at the Disorder show. And they were like, wait, there's a hardcore band in Rochester? And they play, and then I can remember, I'm, I'm sitting in my bedroom at home in Brighton listening to the Disorder show. Tom goes up to the mic and goes, hey, Mike, they let me in. Here it is. And they played our song on the radio. And it was just like that fourth wall was broken down. It was like, you know, there's, there aren't any barriers. We just recorded this thing with a shitty boombox. Now it's on the air. There's a band. Now people know about us. Well, I think I think what you've encapsulated right there is like everything that I love about it, which is that, you know, the, the DIY, the whole DIY angle, which is you, you can have it all. You, you've got to do it yourself, but you've got all the pieces you need right there in front of you. Um, so that you guys were basically the first self-described hardcore band that that formed out of the area. Yes, uh, I, like undoubtedly there were punk bands before us, but I think we definitely, I don't know if we were the first, I, I, I'm not, I'm only going to go on record as saying that we called ourselves a hardcore band. We played our first show in 
April uh, 1986. It was at the Jewish Community Center uh, in Brighton. It was a battle of the bands. Uh, and then a couple weeks later, we played uh, with the Problem Children, who are a band from Tor just outside of Toronto, I think Hamilton, uh, at the RIT Ritz Geller. Uh, and then before I knew it, we were just, we were playing with uh, touring bands. Uh, our next show was with this band from West Virginia called The Inbred, and they were fucking amazing. Like if you like, just look them up. It's a T-H apostrophe Inbred, I-N-B-R-E-D. They were an incredible band. Uh, we played with Beefeater uh in june of 2000 uh, of 1986 that was a beef eater's second time coming to rochester and i, I remember think, being uh, really I think you've shared that flyer with me along with the um the one at the jcc and i yeah. think at least one other one in there maybe with the the show with the inbred um i have those up on the um rochester hardcore history instagram and i'll i guess i'll pull them together so that people can see uh, uh what you're talking about when this is, is goes up on the web I mean, my folks were, my parents were really supportive of me as a musician, uh, but they were pretty terrified about me going to a bar. And, you know, here I'm, I'm trying to explain punk rock to them and straight edge. Uh, and I, I was the only one of, in, in, in that band who was sort of firmly self-defined that way at the time. And we can get to that a little later, but, um, I was pretty nervous before that that show with Beefeater because I really liked them, and uh, I'll never forget getting to talk with uh, Beefeater guitarist Fred Smith, rest in peace, before the show, and and him just being like, "Man, just show him what you got." And I remember playing and looking at him crouched behind my amplifier with his fist in the air, shouting, "Yeah, yeah!" the entire time we played, and like. I was like, holy crap, I have a record with that guy on it and he's sitting by my amp. Again, it's like hardcore is like, like those kind of walls breaking down and it was pretty awesome. So I told you all that so I can get at Youth for Entertainment Alternatives or YEA. This was a kind of a loose collective of the Disorder Show DJs, some folks in bands like Pat Doherty, rest in peace. I'm, I'm so heartbroken like i wish pat could be here to participate in a podcast like this with you he sang in bands like bent ludovico treatment and elmer fudd's gun and was just just a, a smart and really creative dude anyway pat was part of this as well uh timogen mark who would go on to work for maximum rock and roll for many years and was also hunger artists roadie uh cassie schmidt uh who was real she was just kind of a an, an essential person in the forming of early hardcore in Rochester, just getting things organized, uh, making t-shirts, booking bands, just reaching out to places. And so Youth for Entertainment Alternatives was uh, an effort to just book shows, try to find places. Sometimes we had to have them at a bar. There was no other place, but trying to find any place for a show. And I don't know I, if I'm the one who mentioned in a YEA meeting, well, I, you know, the school that I went to from third or fourth through eighth grade, Our Lady of Lourdes has an auditorium. Maybe we can put on a show there. And uh, that is how 
a church basement in Brighton ended up as where the seven seconds uh, nuns and death row show happened. Um, it was a little dicey in that uh, when the sort of the priest, you know, the, the his parish, he showed, sees like all these punk rockers showing up. I think he kind of freaked out if I'm remembering it correctly and like hired bouncers uh, and but after a while, I think they all saw that this was just not necessary, that these were cool kids, smart people, uh, just wanting to have fun. You know, it's like, it's the, like, we don't want you going to a bar because you might get in trouble. And we were, were like, okay, here's, we want to do our thing somewhere else, not a bar. Well, don't do that here. And so we're like, where the fuck are we supposed to do it? You know, um, but that. So that period in 1986 was, I think, like, how do you start a hardcore scene? You have a radio show. You start getting some of the local record stores to carry publications like MRR and mail ordering. I sent away for a lot of stuff. That's where I started, like, you know, ordering directly from Discord uh, um, uh, and, and other places. So... Yeah, you were you really did a phenomenal job, kind of just encapsulating that whole thing. I feel like you've, unbeknownst to everyone, written a book about the history of the whole thing and are <laughs> reading excerpts of it from us. But um, it's it's incredible because you have the radio show, and that was just kind of by chance that all those people happened to be there. And then you had the shops that would agree to carry some of the stuff. But you and Tom, who's the other person I'm really familiar with through posting show flyers um, really had kind of that critical element where you were creating something here in Rochester that kind of pulled all those other elements together and created a community. Was there like, a cause it, it's, it, you know, there's, as long as I've been involved in it since the nineties, there's always been a, a sense of community in it. Did there was, what did that kind of start or were you able to have that sense uh, um you know, in, in 86, when you were just starting out playing those shows from JCC onward? Those first few um, Nuns on Death Row shows, like the Beefeater show, um, Carl, Silvio, and Ed Scales, and Pat Wara, who were uh, drums, bass, and guitar, respectively, and Hunger Artist, showed up at that show, and Ed was wearing a Minor Threat t-shirt. And I, 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 I can't remember, I may have been wearing a seven seconds t-shirt and it was kind of that, oh, there are so few people wearing like, yeah. like a, ba a badge like that. You must be cool. And that, that's how we started talking. And then I found out there was uh, another hardcore band in Rochester, Hunger Artist, uh, you know, just so just to make the timeline a little clearer, there were four lineups of Hunger Artist in its history. I was in lineups two, three, and four. Uh, so I was not an original member of that band. Um, Hunger Artist played, I, the first time I saw them play was in July of 1986 with Rob Filardo's band, American Vandals. And that was at Jazzberries, um, which was a club on Monroe Avenue. It was a, like a vegetarian restaurant during the day. And then they would sort of clear the tables. And man, Sue Plunkett was the owner of that club. And she was just, she was just cool. Just a cool person because I mean, she wasn't a puck rocker, but she like sort of smart and cool enough to recognize creative people, however they looked or sounded. And really that was a thing for me too. like punk rock and hardcore for me were like, that was my in to the arts. Like I always, 
wanted, I was interested in drawing and, uh, or, you know, writing, but punk rock really was something like I had the tools to make it, to do it. All right. So you were talking about some people there and I actually, after the fact, had written down some notes about characters and you mentioned Timogen Mark and he actually ran a, a distribution for like hardcore like records and CDs. And I bought a ton of stuff from him in the mid to late nineties vacuum distribution. Yeah. Yes. And, uh, there's just a ton of tie-ins there about stuff you were talking about. Like record time was, was just still kind of around for like a year or two when I first got into this. So I got into a lot of the music uh, through Rob Filardo, who was working there at the time. And then you were mentioning, you were starting to mention Jazzberries and I grew up on uh, Monroe and Wilcox. So that whole area is like stuff that I like am familiar with, but was like just a little too young to have witnessed. So I'm obviously yeah. excited to hear you talk about uh, stuff like that. Right on. Yeah, I think one of the threads that's going to run through this conversation will be Rob Filardo because he's really been instrumental in kind of saving some of the artifacts of, uh, of the scene and just caring and reaching out to people and communicating. So, yeah. So, so where, I, where do we go? Can I mention something about that too, uh, Michael? I, I I wanted to uh, kind of mention that I think you and I are, are a bit like kindred spirits. Um, our day jobs were both librarians, correct? Yep, that's um, right. And, I, and, and before I actually had a proper introduction to you, I came across uh, something that you had put out on the web. It was some sort of like interactive timeline slash map uh, where people or you had uploaded uh, flyers from hardcore shows um, yes. around various cities. And uh, I just thought it was such a cool thing because um, it was about kind of preserving this ephemeral, um, you know, like these show flyers and just these things that were never really meant to be archived. Uh, but it also was just so heavy into stuff that was going on in Rochester at a time before I had even known, you know, about hardcore. And one of the things that's really special about having you and on, on Josh's podcast and getting to talk to you is it really shows through that, um, you know, all this stuff kind of matters to you. In, in, in the way that I think it matters to Josh and I with kind of preserving some of this older stuff from our era and reconnecting with people uh, around it. So thank you for, uh, um, you know, all that you've done, you know, as a, uh, being on this podcast, but also some of the other stuff you've been sharing out on, on social media and, and on the web. Right on. Thank you. Yeah. So Let's see, did you have any other questions about NODR or should, should we keep moving and talk about Hunger Artist a bit? Uh, so I guess I'm kind of curious a little bit with Nuns on Death Row. Like I know it was like an early hardcore thing. Like was there any sort of connection with like Buffalo and Syracuse yet by that point? Or were you guys just mainly keeping it like Rochester? It was just before uh, Buffalo Connection started to happen. Uh, just like it, it would just, it would, uh, I, you know, I'm looking at the timeline I created and the, the connection to Buffalo just, it comes around 1987, um, is where that starts. So, um, Nuns on Death Row ended somewhere around the end of 86 and Tom and I, we, I think our, one of the main band, two, two bands that we loved were. DRI, you know, Dirty Rotten Imbeciles, and Adrenaline OD. That Let's Barbecue 7-inch was like sort of crucial uh, to us. And we just wanted to play really fast. Uh, so we formed a band called Mr. Clean that was just us really just kind of just playing 
thrash as fast as we could and uh, trying to have fun. We played a few shows, uh, not that many shows. One of the most significant ones that I can remember was with uh, opening for Hunger Artist unofficially uh, in June of 87 at a place called Richmond's, uh, which is just off of Main Street um, near where Samurai Skates used to be. And uh, we just went up and borrowed Hunger Artist's equipment and played a few songs. And it was uh, and I just sort of remember the crowd exploding. And we'd never really seen anything like that at a Nuns on Death Row show. Like people were kind of like, I don't know, would nod or maybe jump up and down a bit. But like we sort of played some of these fast songs and it just looked like, I don't, you know, I think back to like an old like Beetle Bailey cartoon, you know, when Sarge Snorkel's beating up Beetle Bailey and they're just like a big cloud with limbs coming out of it. That's what it, what the show felt like. And it felt really good. The summer of 87 was pretty crazy and crowded in that when I, when I go back and look at my timeline here, Mr. Clean, uh, uh, Hunger Artist played their last show with Tim Roy, who was their first singer uh, in July of 87. Mr. Clean played its last show in August 5th. 10 days later, uh, Tom and I had joined Hunger Artist. I'd learned the whole, we'd learned the whole set and we opened up for the Goo Goo Dolls uh, at a place called the Pyramid Arts Center right across the street from the Memorial Art Gallery. What all I remember of that show was we were jumping so much that the stage broke and I took that as a really good omen. About, about two weeks after that show, we recorded the Welcome to Me tape. I mean, we were just moving at blinding speed. Was, and like a couple months later, we got a, a really good review in Maximum Rock and Roll. And I kind of felt like we had something good going on with that band. Uh, I had started college in September of 87. And Hunger Artist dr drummer Ed Scales went to Hampton in Virginia. So... Hunger Artist kind of became a band that only existed during the summer and winter break. Uh, and which meant that in the off time, the rest of us were kind of like writing songs. And I, I, my memory of my, like my freshman year of college is doing a lot of correspondence. I was just writing to bands, ordering stuff, sending the tape out. And uh, Greg, you asked about some of the ways in which the connection between the Rochester scene and the DC scene happened. Yeah. Um, I, I've got like a little like piece of proof of that. Shortly before the pandemic, um, this band Red Hair played a show and Red Hair is basically Swizz with a different drummer. Jason Farrell, the guitar player from, uh, who was in Swizz and Red Hair came up to me when I came into the, he's like, dude, look what I found. And he had, he had like, the address for my, my mailing address my freshman year in college. And it was like, you know, and it sort of just was like, this was what it was part of my little collection of like contacts for shows. I remember uh, a girl I went to college with grew up with the guys in Soulside and she put me in touch with them. I had written to Shudder to Think and uh, ordered something from them. There were a few other bands, American Standard from New Jersey, Verbal Assault from Rhode Island. These are all bands that just like, they all kind of knew each other and these connections sort of got shared, you know, and 
we became a place, Rochester became a place that would do shows, um, that people knew that, that it wouldn't be a shitty show, they'd be treated very well here, and there'd be a really good turnout. And so like this stretch in 1988 of shows with those bands, um, probably most significantly uh, July 88, which was Soulside, Swizz, American Standard, and Hunger Artist. It was probably the best show I've ever, like, aside, like not my part of it, the rest of it was the best show I've ever seen in my life. Those bands were pretty incredible. Um, I mean, and around that time, we were getting to play with, with uh, like, SNFU uh, as well. Uh, these just were bands that were sort of coming around to Rochester, to Buffalo. Uh, Hunger Artists played, I think, probably the we uh, out of all those shows we did like a a three show little mini tour at the beginning of 89 with swizz and and soulside that was was really one of the sort of lifelong good experiences uh for me the rochester show was at corpus christi church on main street and it was a uh, it was like a food drive, you know, bring a can of food and like five bucks or something. And remember, um, Soulside, I think they they showed up with like, these broken black and white TVs that just played static, and they played with no stage lights, just those TVs, sort of sending out this eerie blue gray moving light. We made we met everyone's guarantee and uh, had little money extra left over and. There were these wrestling mats from at Corpus Christi, and the bands afterward we were just sort of wrestling around, like uh, who would, you know, the winner would get the the rest of the money. And somehow Jason Farrell from Swizz broke his wrist, and uh, Swizz had to cancel the rest of the tour of that little mini tour, but uh, uh, came along uh, with us for the ride. Uh, the next night, which was, uh, let me look at my notes here. River Rock Cafe in Buffalo was seven seconds, Soulside and Hunger Artist. And that show was probably the biggest show I'd play I'd ever I'd played up till that time. My one of my closest friends from back in those days was John Drenning, uh, who he uh, he played guitar in Third Man In, New Balance, and Zero Tolerance. Uh, and he went to the University of Rochester. Um, and uh, he just did an interview for the Nickel City podcast where he mentioned that someone out there has video of all the shows from this era at River Rock Cafe. So somewhere, if that's true, there is footage of that Soulside Hunger Artist Seven Seconds show, which was pretty great. That, uh, um, that's a classic venue too. I think that um, I see on, on social media, um, old scans of flyers, you know, classic Revelation Records, bands all played a show there uh classic discord bands all seem to have played a show there so it's really cool that you've shared a stage not only with some of those bands but at that venue too yeah that was a cool place was um, uh was rochester's kind of equivalent to that um uh, uh um uh the the club that was over like on charlotte street was it back streets uh back streets was on was that on charlotte or sio i can't remember uh, I think Charlotte. I think that's right. Uh, Backstreets was a little smaller. I th I I don't think Backstreets. I don't. Th that place may have been a three hundred capacity venue, though. I think for some shows they fit more than that in there. Um, 
uh, I don't think that there was a, a venue that did, that did hardcore shows in Rochester that was as big as uh, River Rock Cafe. But, you know, the comparisons between Buffalo and um, Rochester were kind of interesting. Like, Buffalo at the time was like somehow it was like a very Revelation Records, New York hardcore kind ha, had that vibe to it uh, in no small part because uh, uh, of the bands that like Andy Parker and Mark Blanca were in, you know, Third Man In and New Balance and uh, and then on to Zero Tolerance and uh, John Drenning as well. And um, Carl Silvio, the bass player and hunger artist, uh, went to University of Buffalo for a time and he, be, and he was really good friends with Andy Parker. Um, we love those guys. Uh, but like the running joke that we had, we all had was like, if the buff, the, the Buffalo scene and the Rochester scenes at the time were like these weird, bizarro parallel universes where, I mean, in their eyes, the Rochester scene was more like DC, uh, very, very DC influenced. Um, I'm not really sure that that was really true. I think hunger artist and nuns on death row were, DC influenced, especially like my guitar playing. But as a whole, I think the Rochester scene was really cool. It was weird. It was different. It, I mean, you know, a band like Bent, those guys musically could play circles around nearly anyone else. You know, Nick, the guitar player in Bent, was just basically a, a, a virtuoso. And so, I mean, and that their 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 music, their art, the whole thing—it was just like art and uh, and, and hardcore. Um, and just I, I felt we were kind of square in comparison comparison to those guys. But we, you know, we played plenty of shows with Bent as well. But the running joke we had was that that you know, Buffalo style was like athletic gear, hooded sweatshirts, and X's on the hands, and the DC style was dressed all in black and crying on stage. Neither of those things were true, but uh, uh, you know, it made for a good joke. As John Drenning put it, you know, it's like pro wrestling. It's not real, but it's exaggerated. I think the timeline was pretty good for Nuns on Death Row. I think we were just starting to get into Hunger Artists, which was like 87-ish, okay. I think you were saying, so. We'll have to check with some of the original members of that band, but the first time I saw them, was in July 1986 um, at Jazz on Monroe Avenue. And they played with Rob Filardo's band, American Vandals. Uh, and what stuck in my head about this show was how great they were. Like, they were the best band I'd ever seen. Um, they, I thought they were head and shoulders better than Nuns on Death Row. They just, I have, I've all, I, thought then and I think now the thing that that can make a band a good band great is the drummer and Ed Scales was a phenomenal is a phenomenal drummer uh I think he he was the first person who turned me on to Fela the, the you know like Nigerian music and he used to play along with that I know he would practice with you know like little headphones to playing those Afrobeat songs. And that gave his kick drum was so powerful, so clear, and he could do these triplets on it. Uh, and that's the kind of like that, like sort of whip crack, sharp drumming that like Chuck Biscuits 
uh, has, you know, or had, um, you know, it's the drummers who can play like Earl from Bad Brains, just like, and I, you know, no matter how loud we were, I could hear his kick drum loud and clear, fast, it was so precise. Um, and we became fast friends with, with those guys. They were uh, Pat uh, and Carl uh, and Ed. Um, Carl Silvio, the bass player in Hunger Artist, and I particularly became like really close friends. And that's a, a friendship that continues to today. Um, like he just, he just texted me now talking bass, you know, like some recommendations on basses and bass amps, um, talking about that. Um, and he's really someone in my life who all these years later, if something, if he had trouble, I'd be like, all right, it's clobbering time. All right. Uh, what do you need? I got gotcha. you, got your back. And I think maybe when I think back in those times, uh, and how few of us were into hardcore, we were all looking for allies. It's like, so, like just some other people who had similar points of view, similar tastes, but also, I mean, no one, it felt like no one liked this music. So when you encountered anyone who was like, hey, that thing you're doing, that's not shit. That's it's pretty cool. Really meant a lot. And I think that's where the relationship between Hunger Artist and Nuns on Death Row kind of built up and played some shows together. Um, eventually, I think, as I mentioned before, we, we took our break. Um, it was this really packed summer of 1987 where um, Tom Mesmer, the singer from Nuns on Death Row, he and I had gone on and playing in a thrash band called uh, Mr. Clean very briefly. But um, Hunger Artist ended up having a lineup change uh, there that, that uh, the original singer, Tim Roy, was no longer in the band. Um, I think his, the other guys, Carl, Ed, and Pat, wanted to go in a different direction. I think something that was uh, a little more aggressive. Uh, I think, you know, the previous Hunger Artist had some more humorous songs. And I think that they were sort of going away from that and much more toward things that were more like Minor Threat, Marginal Man, The Faith, um, Articles of Faith. Those were bands that were super, that big touchstones for us. So uh, um, uh, uh, Tom and I joined in summer of 87 um, and we sort of recorded the Welcome to Me tape. Most of that was one take. We recorded in, in Eddie's basement. It was so fast. Um, I didn't have time to learn two of the songs and I had to go in and dub my guitar in later. Otherwise, we kind of like, it was like one of those like joyous things where like, it was a four track. Um, they just set up some mics, um, some, some, uh, um, and I just remember jumping around, sweating a lot and us being like, this is the record. Like we'd get it right at the most. There were two takes uh, of anything. And, you know, uh, that's kind of all we needed. It sounded just, we were like, we don't need, a formal st studio as we would kind of find out later when uh, the band would would try to record in formal studios it's very hard to like ask for what we wanted uh, uh since so few recording engineers in this part of rochester oh. you know knew <laughs> what we were looking for you know what what we wanted to sound like you know a few months later it was like in 88 early 88 when hunger artist went to uh, dynamic recording to record who changed the engineers there did not they did not have any part there was who knew how to record the stuff there we and i didn't have the wherewithal to ask 
ask for things. They were, I just remember them sort of being like, is this supposed to sound like this? And being like totally unsatisfying, uh, unsatisfied with how it came out. Um, you know, just like, I didn't have the wherewithal to ask, like, we, you know, we want the drums to sound like this. I, I mean, I sort of wish I would have shown up there with, you know, copy of like the circle jerks, you know, like, like group sex or something like that and be like, it should sound like this, uh, you know, it's, or, it's, or it, it's a, it's a kind of interesting story. Cause like now you have like Doug white who basically has made a whole business out of only recording like hardcore and punk and metal bands out of, out of Lockport. And there's like places in yeah. Rochester and Buffalo that studios that just specialize in like extreme or aggressive music. I, I actually listened to that recording um to kind of refamiliarize myself with hunger artist and it holds up well um for music of that era and i think one of the things that you mentioned that um kind of was lost on me is that like some of those albums some of those demo tapes that i've listened to not from hunger artists but other bands that were your contemporaries unless you're like talking about black flag or minor threat or one of those established scenes those recordings were probably made by like some guy who only recorded like jazz bands or light rock or something. So it holds up well. It's just good that you guys uh, interjected your own creative efforts there. We, we tried, but I, I, I can remember even just like getting the record and thinking and being like really disappointed in how, like, I was like, oh, this doesn't sound like, uh, and, uh, but just again, not knowing what to ask for. Um, and even not being, uh, it's, I don't know how, other, any other way to put it, but even the courage to to like speak up and say, hey, you know, like just being like 16, 17, 18 years old in a studio and yeah, he's the engineer. He must know what he's doing. Uh, but uh, all of this, you know, like, you know, like every little experience you have along the way sort of contributes to who you, you know, become later on and I think like my recording experiences more recently in life I've been like fortunate enough to record several projects with Jay Robbins from Jawbox someone who just has just like an uncanny sense of you know like what bands are looking for how things could sound and but also has the just tremendous generosity to ask the bands what do you want? Like, well, what are you hearing? What are you feeling here? No one was asking us anything like that back then. Um, so I, I guess, I don't know if I mentioned this uh, in, in our previous uh, session, but the band Hunger Artist really only was active during breaks from school. Uh, Ed Scales went to Hampton in Virginia. And so this would mean like it would, he'd get back like, a day before Thanksgiving or something, and we'd have one practice and play a show Thanksgiving night or something like that. Uh, he'd come back for two weeks for uh, Christmas, and Carl and I would have written a few songs, showed it to him, we'd have a practice, and then play a show. And then we would just do as much as humanly possible in the summertime. Uh, that's why when I look at, I, I was like writing out this chronology here, and it's just like July and August are packed, you know, like like the August 1988 we're you know we're playing with SNFU we're playing with Shudder to Think uh um verbal verbal assault um bands like that and um uh that 
those those were such great experiences because uh, they were all pretty much built on any one of us or people in another band just writing a letter, reaching out uh, and setting up a show or saying like, hey, you want to come here and play? Uh, we can, you know, meet a small guarantee. And like, we didn't realize that some of these bands would be playing shows, you know, like in my eyes, like fucking, like seeing Swizz or playing a show with Swizz and Soulside, that's like playing a show with like Black Sabbath and Led Zeppelin for like some other, like a rock dude. You know, these, these were the, in my eyes, the best bands of the time. And it was sort of weird to me that they might be playing in other towns and maybe the shows weren't always that great, but we could always guarantee if they came to Rochester, there'd be a big crowd, they'd meet their guarantee and we'd have fun. It's it, it's funny that you mentioned that because that's kind of been my experience with running the, the Rochester Hardcore Archive Instagram is that I reach out to these people from sometimes like national acts just to get like their impression of a show or to maybe get a picture or a flyer from them. And people have been always really willing to help. And I've found I think that's pretty universally true about hardcore. I'm sure you probably have similar experiences, even more so, Josh, uh, you know, doing this podcast and setting up shows. Um, that's always been one of the most special things to me about this uh, music community that everybody's approachable and authentic. Well, um, what's actually, what's actually funny that you're saying about the shows thing that you, you got me thinking about too, Michael, is you're saying like that you could always, you guys had like a network of bands that you guys could yeah. like guarantee a good show every time they came here. I'm seeing, I'm hearing so many parallels of like the hardcore scene that Greg and I were involved in in the early two thousands with like the scene that you guys, I know musically and maybe even aesthetically there's, there's a lot of differences, but like, it was it was the same thing for us like we had at least 10 or 15 bands that like they weren't from here but like in previous interviews like we've referred to them as like rochester bands because every time yeah. they came here we knew they'd have a really good show certain you know, cities we seemed to like the bands had relationships with like there was a lot of interactions between rochester bands and baltimore bands in that period with like mike riley and the spark and then um we've always obviously had good connections with buffalo and syracuse but you, you get you get those relationships and then you start adding more to them and building synergy one other thing i'm curious about though you were you were talking about the recording thing which i wanted to know about like engineers and stuff and how that would that would come about so you touched on that but one thing i'm curious about is like late 80s early 90s even like punk and especially hardcore and not as you've been talking about throughout this interview not a lot of people knew about it so like for outsiders when you would try to play the music for like family or friends that weren't familiar with it, like what kind of, <laughs> what kind of reactions would you get? Uh, well, I, I think all of our families were pretty, we pretty supportive of, of us. Uh, like I, I was talking with my girlfriend about this time and she was asking, uh, you know, about like some of the things that sort of made the scene happen. We had, we had talked about this, you know, about the radio show, about, uh, you know, uh, bugging record stores in town to start carrying magazines and stuff. But I got to tell you, getting my driver's license and my mom lending me her car, because I mean, we didn't have a van. So each of us were like, you know, our a parent would, would lend us a car and be like, hey, we want to go play at some Elks Lodge in Syracuse, uh, you know, and they would get sort of somewhat get over there, are you out of your mind, to uh, like let and like 
And you're like, no, thanks, mom. <laughs> you know, that's pretty awesome. And uh, I can still remember like our, like her car, like some the window getting broken out and something getting stolen out of the car. Fortunately, it wasn't here, but having to go back and, and tell her that just sucked. It's, it's, you know, it's funny because I, as you're like talking about trying to convince your parents to like let you, you know, participate in this, you know, music scene or give you permission to stay out late or whatever, like, Reminds me of, uh, of being younger and like my parents just like thinking straight edge was some bullshit I made up so that they would be okay with letting me stay out on a school night or something. And then when I finally turned 21 and I'm like still not drinking, they're like, oh, maybe this is like a real thing. <laughs> like, um, but I, I, I just am, you know, it's, it's interesting to hear about because I think hardcore by the time I was getting into it, there was a little bit more of, of a, if not that, at least an awareness of like what punk and 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 uh and you know these like music scenes are in like popular mainstream culture mm -hmm. i'm kind of curious to like you know hear what young kids today getting into bands are 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 um you know i've noticed a uh, uh, like turnstile was featured on npr recently and uh mm -hmm. um you know there's this band out of uh i don't know i think they're like rhode island or, or or connecticut called bulletproof backpack they look like they're probably like younger high school kids but yeah. just from like creeping yeah. on their their band's Instagram, I can like tell that one, the singer's parents like used to run a record label maybe or something. They're wearing like infest shirts and shit. So I, I definitely kind of like the, like just kind of seeing this start to span like multiple generations almost, which we kind of have a little bit represented right here with this group. So thanks for sharing that. But well, you know, you bring up the Rhode Island scene and like the first person I think of with Rhode Island is Brian Simmons, who in the 80s had a fanzine called Constant Change, which was like a really pretty rad, pretty awesome fanzine. He booked shows in Rhode Island. He booked the show that we played there with uh, Verbal Assault. Uh, he set up the show we played there with Swizz uh, on the Hunger Artist Tour. Um, uh, and Brian's, that guy is true blue. He's still at it. Uh, he runs Atomic Action uh, Records uh, that puts out records like uh, bands like Fucking Invincible um, and some others. But I, I, I know I've seen that Bulletproof Backpack band on, on his Instagram feed somewhere. But that's a dude who's like still at it. At, you know, he's a farmer. His fam whole family's involved with the business. I think. His I think. Are, I think. Yeah, I think that guy is the the, the father from because the the kid lives on a farm for Bulletproof Backpack. There's like pictures of them playing a show, and there's like sheep and st stuff like just watching it's the Probably video. them. Oh, but that's awesome. This, I mean, this is what I mean of someone who's like was there and is still there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And you know that's, well, and that's i like that's and, and i like that you know who he is and i know who he is and he's like both kind of just this person off on the periphery in our in our in our you know world here um you know it's yeah that that i guess that band and that record label and that family has something that i'm a little envious of uh, going on maybe um but I, I like i like that you know what we're talking about here because I don't know if you, you saw recently, but Seven Seconds is going to do another tour. Uh, they're like coming to Buffalo, I think, coming up. Um, oh, and nice. Kind of got me thinking, like Seven Seconds. I know there's been like a hiatus in there, and Agnostic Front, I think, falls into this category too, where like they've been broken up for a couple of years. But basically, like both of those bands have been playing shows for like forty years straight. Yeah. Um, so that tells me that like the upper lifespan of a hardcore band is like maybe forty years. So conceivably we have like a band maybe like bulletproof backpack that's 
opening for maybe like seven seconds or agnostic front even but you you could conceivably have bands forming today that'll be around in 40 years and um something about that just makes me feel really good about having gotten involved in hardcore as like a young teenager and you know stayed interested and true to the values and you know kind of the 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 world that it the picture that it paints of the world um but i i yeah I, over the course of this pandemic um and getting getting acquainted with you michael and kind of reconnecting yep. with josh and other people really kind of we've got something really special here that like not everybody gets to have something like that, you know, when they're growing up and going through life. So yeah, sorry, sorry to thank you for coming exactly. to my Ted talk. <laughs> no, yeah, but I hear you. I, for me, the, you know, a band that's been, I, I didn't mention them in our previous session, but the one band that's been the through line for my, pretty much as my entire life was the Minutemen. Um, and, uh, they made me want to play in a band. Uh, you know, I was, I was just learning to play my instrument and read an interview with Mike Watt saying, you know, and talking about how they thought you needed to be someone special, like royalty or someone like that to, to write your own songs. And then when they saw like the germs play, they're like, wait, those are just regular people like me. I can do this. I read that. And I just remember being like, I got to make a band and saying to Tom Mesmer, like, and that's how Nuns on Death Row happened. And then a few years later, when Firehose came to Rochester to play, this was, it was like after Rage and Full On came out, but maybe before the second album, Ifen, came out. And there's Watt standing out front there. And I just walked up to him and introduced myself and told him that, that how, how he had that particular influence on me in that way. And that my hunger artist was about to embark on our first U.S. tour. And what kind of van should we buy? And fucking Mike Watt just gives, puts me in this big bear hug. Uh, just, his eyes got kind of misty. And he said, in that Mike Watt voice, he said, man, D. Boone died in a Chevy. Fuck Chevy. Buy Ford. Uh, and uh, so we ended up buying a Ford Econoline 350. Uh, basically based on Mike Watt's say so. But like having access to your heroes, I mean, like no one, no one out, like people out there learning to play Stairway to Heaven uh, on their guitar are never going to get to meet Jimmy Page. Uh, but like, you know, I got to really like just to reach out and be able to like write a letter to Ian Mackay and hear back from him uh, well, is, you know. As a matter of fact, like, I don't know if you're planning on talking about that, but uh, I came across, you know, before you and I had really become more acquainted, I came across that blog post. I don't know if you made it or someone else did, but it was essentially just kind of a, an article, uh, more or less, that might have, you know, 10 or 15 years ago appeared in a, or 20 years ago appeared in like a zine or something. But um, it, 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 I don't know if you want to share kind of kind of the origin in the providence uh, behind that whole experience. Oh, sure. In fall 87, well, let me back up a moment and say, like, talking about, like, the pre-internet days and how, like, always feeling like you're uh, behind, you know, like, by the time, like, you're relying on a print fanzine to learn, or a record being released to learn about something happening, one always felt like, I always felt like I was missing out on what was happening right now. 
um, the first time, in fact, I ever heard of the internet was Pat Wara, the original guitar player from Hunger Artist. Uh, and he worked for Xerox. He was always involved in technology. He was like, hey, I was talking with someone in DC on the interweb. And uh, he has a, a demo of Ian MacKay's new band, Embrace. And I was like, wait, uh, I wasn't even like, what's the interweb? I was like, Embrace, what? Ian MacKay, like, and like, so that he was talking was like, just so that's the, that was the first I heard of, of the internet. But um, the always wanting to like, be a part of what's happening in the moment, um, really sort of got me interested in um, the ability to like reach out to a record label to write them a letter. I wrote to, I had been ordering records from Discord for a few years at that point. Um, the first Discord records I heard were on the Disorder Show. The first Discord records I bought were at the House of Guitars. Back in those days, I don't know, it's always been a mess down there where the music is. But at that time, for some reason, they organized records either by record label or by distributor. They were just in piles. And I went to the front desk and was like, hey, do you guys have anything on Discord? And one person was really dismissive. Another person said, I he just sort of pointed in a general direction and said, I think there's a box from Discord over there somewhere. I don't know. You might, you can dig through there. If you, and I, I'm digging through and I find a box that had the Faith Void split record, Scream Still Screaming, Flex Your Head, and Government Issues Boycott Stab in it. And I bought them all right there. And those, again, those were, rec those, this, those were huge. Those records changed my life. All of them. Uh, I listened to them over and over again. And then I saw like the little send away forms in there. And I was just st started writing the Discord and ordering records directly. But I, um, so, I, what happened with this, uh, my friend Sarah Grady has uh, a blog called, it's about mixtapes. And uh, she got in touch with me because I had found in a box here a cassette that Ian Mackay had made for me in 87 that had uh, a band called Dove on one side. Dove was uh, a few people, or the singer from Double O. Uh, and uh, Pete Moffat drumming, he went on to be in the last lineup of Government Issue and in Burning Airlines with Jay Robbins. And, um, and you just glossed over it real quickly, but I just want to like point it out that like you have a tape that Ian MacKay made for you. Like how fucking cool is that? Yeah, like yeah. in 87. So, uh, um, and then, and so she, Sarah reaches out to Ian who's been involved in this big archiving project at the Discord house. And he was like, oh yeah, not only do I remember that, but I have the fucking letter. And uh, uh, um, so that, like, that she used that as an opportunity. She and I went over to the Discord house and we had a really nice afternoon talking with Ian uh, about this tape. And um, in the letter, I'm like, hey, I heard you have a new band. And I think the, the B side of the tape is maybe Fugazi's third show. I'll have to go back and look and remember, but it's really early on for, for Fugazi. I think there's still a three piece with Gee only, made, like coming in and singing a song. Um, but uh, again, much like, like, like when Tom Mesmer went to the WITR studios and played that Nuns on Death Row song on the air, uh, having Ian MacKay write me back and make a tape for me. 
this was like, these are the walls being broken down and being like, this is like, we have all the information we need here to make our own thing. Uh, uh, essentially was all, what all that was showing me and, and telling me and that I need to be that uh, make what I know as accessible as possible to other people as well. Um, you know, if they're helping out a schlub like me, surely I can help out other schlubs too. That's, that's uh, kind of where I come at this from because, and, and I, and I like that you and I have like a similar career and kind of, I think that informs the energy that we approach this whole thing with what Ian Mackay is doing uh, with his personal archive. I understand that he has like some relationship with a university that they're going to like take ownership over it and preserve it in, in kind of the fullest sense that, that a university archive or library preserves documents. As far as I know, I do not believe that, that it's going to a university right now. Okay. Like that, 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 I don't think that, that there's any... Was, any, mis- any, was there, is I there like some relationship with, uh, with like... Uh, well, um, John Davis, well, first of all, uh, like there are a number of like the Martin Luther King Library in, not, not MLK, I'm sure, I'm forgetting which library it is one of the dc public libraries has a punk archive yeah uh the university of maryland at college park has a punk archive okay i think that's that's what i'm confusing with with uh with with uh, ian mckay and discord yeah i mean he he his archival project is a very large and separate one and i like that like so i as far as i know it's 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 not that it's going any but i i don't i don't have I don't know any of the details or any, anything you know uh, intimate about any of that, but just that um, that there's this project going on, but it's it's in the it's in the house. Yeah. Uh, yeah um, and it is it's kind of it's incredible. Uh, well, and he's and, clearly and, like in the, the interviews that I've read with him, he's like clearly like he saved your letter from just some random guy in New York State in 1987. Like I love hardcore but i don't think i've gone to that and i save all my flyers and stuff but i haven't gone to like that length um but, um, but i know, think it's like, fascinating that that he did uh and then that dc uh public library project that you mentioned that's like a freaking dream job uh for yeah. me and if like any city you know maybe new york could probably you know sustain a project like that but dc is definitely the place that um that uh that that you know could have you know that needs to have somebody like that kind of cataloging and archiving this cultural phenomenon that's you know hardcore that as i kind of referenced earlier i feel like is going to span you know perhaps our life lifespans so thank you for letting me find my thoughts again there and kind of stumble over my words well I, i guess the thing to me that's the best about um that letter and then that tape was that it eventually led to fugazi coming to rochester and playing uh, they played in October '89, uh, um, and it was what that was one of the last Hunger Artist shows with us opening for Fugazi, uh, which was just a, a really like like one of the, the coolest shows I've ever, if not maybe that may have been the coolest show I've ever played. Just uh, um, just a wonderful experience, and Ian still has the notebook uh, of that tour with like. How many people came in through the door? Uh, you know, they met the guarantee. Who the other bands were? They kept tra- he kept track of all of that, which which is remarkable. So, uh, and, and I'm grateful for uh, that 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 he and other people are um, 
saving this. I, yeah. I think my biggest regret uh, of my time in the 80s and early 90s in hardcore was not doing a better job archiving myself. I, I, that, that, that I gave away things that, uh, I mean, I, I don't mean to sound greedy or anything like that, but I should have kept everything. Yeah. I should have saved everything. And um, that I, it wasn't even that I was hoping someone else would do it. I, I think I didn't quite appreciate that it was something special and unique. Uh, like we're just always moving on to the next thing. Well, for, for me, when I was younger, it satisfied some very important needs that I had in me, you know, like emotional and psychological needs that kind of arose from some childhood trauma. And I appreciated mm -hmm. it, I think, a little bit more than just the casual fan because it actually did something for me in a, in a psychological sense. Um, but I think like you, I didn't have a full appreciation for just how special this thing is for me. It was like, Oh, this is, this is some, some music that my friends and these guys I skateboard with like to listen to and make. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, at 40, I look back on that and just think like, I, I could have just, I could have just been playing video games all summer. I could have just, you know, I could have been doing nothing, you know, just, you know, not, not that there's anything wrong with playing sports, but that could have just been my whole life. And this is something deeper. Um, yeah. I'm, you know, I'm grateful that, 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 uh, you know, Ian McKay is saving all this stuff. And I just recently posted some stories, which are probably fell off my, my feed of other Instagrams that I've come across from other localities. Oh, great. Yeah, yeah. Other like, I saw you that. know, just, just archives of, of different, um, you know, local scenes or eras of hardcore and punk. Um, and I think it, I think it's important to, to do and to save these things. And I, I wish I had made a better effort to save some of my stuff, but I did save quite a bit. And I think if I had gotten involved, like after the internet had been created, I probably wouldn't have saved that stuff, mm, but mm -hmm. it you know, the internet was there in a rudimentary form, but you know, it just was such an odyssey to try to find a new band and get your hands on their music and, yeah, I, I figured like if I throw away this revelation catalog from three years ago, I might not ever have anything I can go reference to like, well, what are the other bands on that record label? What, what should I be looking mm -hmm. out for? I guess to get back to like hunger artists at the time, I think we were, we were really inspired by um, Soulside and Swizz in the, uh, because they were touring and we thought at verbal assault as well as like we want we really wanted to do that as well we wanted to get out out of uh out of rochester see the country and uh i believe it was timogen our our uh, our roadie who um through maximum rock and roll contacts um sort of established the relationship with Jack and Joel in Arizona who ran hippie core records. They also had put out re some really marvelous music by a band from South Dakota uh, or North Dakota, one of the Dakotas named Descent. Descent were an, uh, just a great band of that time from the Midwest. Uh, and we, we did not have the money to put out a record on our, on our own. And so they, that really was, an act of tremendous generosity uh, on, on their part to believe in us enough to put out this record. And I think we in return thought, great, let's, uh, let, let's tour uh, on this. Um, 
Pat Wara, the other guitar, the original guitarist in Hunger Artist, as I said, was a little older than us. And I think because of his work commitments was not able to like take a summer off to tour. Uh, we had originally gotten our friend Kevin O'Connor, who had played in some other Rochester punk bands um, uh, to be the, uh, the second guitarist. Uh, but I think what eventually was coming clear to all of us was that bass player Carl Silvio, Silvio and myself just we were best friends and we were like I think we got this and it was uh, that 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 we felt like where we were heading the kind of music we were writing uh how we were developing that it worked best for a four piece and that's what ended up the uh the tour uh summer 1989 it was a six week tour um that uh Tom Mesmer uh the singer in Hunger Artist he booked we our contacts came from maximum rock and roll folks and from Soulside and swizz and we just basically did a clockwise loop around the country for six weeks i think we played nearly every night of the week for the almost the first month of it uh until we got to arizona and stayed with friends in arizona and that week kind of like took the wind out of our sails it was like 116 degrees there we were having a lot of van problems uh i i could speak for hours about this tour um it was mainly small shows we would mainly play with local bands i think we played with swizz a few times probably the the most insane memorable show that we played was in willimantic connecticut it was in a venue called Populous Pudding. That was a former fur vault uh, that the previous night, Gigi Allen had played there. Oh, and nice. Fuck, it fucking still smelled like shit in there. It was nasty. Uh, and But Willimantic was so weird and strange. It just seemed to be full of junkies. Like, And we had heard that, that, that there was a lot like heroin going from the east coast into canada was going through willimantic that there was just just people were we i had never before been to a place where they were like walking dead around and uh you know uh someone pulled a gun on us while we were there we got out of it safely uh uh that night uh we had we would always just like ask either the person putting on the show would uh would give us a place to stay we i think we stayed at a hotel once the entire tour um, someone always slept in the van to guard the equipment, though. And uh, that night, I, it was my turn to stay in the van. Carl chose to stay in the van with me because our accommodations that night were to be locked into the fur vault after the show uh, by the owner. And he would come in the morning and let us out. And Carl was like, that place stinks. I'm not staying in a fur vault. So he and I stayed in the van, and some dudes tried to break in the van while we were in it. Um, and uh i mean it's a good thing you guys are sleeping in that van because there was no like lamb goat for you guys to go make a gofundme appeal to have everyone chip in five bucks to buy you a new trailer <laughs> you know when i when i hear um al Burrill from ssd control talking about how his singular focus at all the shows was protecting the gear i related and i was like yeah. totally like the tour must go on i i loved being on tour even though we i mean i think we were had a, a, almost no budget we're living on like a peanut butter sandwich a day we had you know we made most of our money from selling t-shirts um um it was a great great experience i came back from that uh maybe feeling like uh um 
I could do this again. But um, I think some of my bandmates were, uh, did not feel so gung-ho about it because it really was a kind of miserable experience in an unair conditioned van for no money uh, uh, and jumping around and sweating every night uh, and getting paid. Uh, here's $10, you know, but I loved it because I was just like, here's something that we made and can share with people, which was, I know, that was, was, uh, was always that was always my love of it when I was like 19 and doing you know active in multiple bands at once the fact that like this this thing exists that you can do it all like you can just be a, a you know an average person and put on a show um yeah you know definitely definitely worth worth protecting and preserving well one thing I'm curious about I don't want to jump out of the timeline too much but I know uh I want I want it to be mentioned that there's going to be a, a record being issued for you guys of a unreleased full length is that something that you played on Yes so um after the tour um Hunger Artist had won a battle a a battle of the bands uh at this big what at the time was a big club in Rochester Idols it was called the Idols Vinyl Competition. And we had won and we'd gotten some money to record at a studio called PCI. Uh, I think it was PCI. I, again, I can't remember. Um, but uh, we recorded, right? We were coming right off that tour. So we had played these songs every night for, for uh, six weeks or so. There is another, there is a recording of us on that tour uh, that I'll share with you guys. Um, uh, and we're trying to find a better source copy of it so we can share, share this, not to get too ahead of things. But we did play on WFMU in East Orange, New Jersey. And that FMU recording really captures what we sounded like on that tour. You know, like, like zero gaps between songs. It was just like 25 minutes, 30 minutes of nonstop, which we learned from bands like Government Issue that had like no pauses, but like, or they would have blocks of four songs and then, you know, 10 seconds to your guitar and then boom, keep going. Um, so we recorded this album at the end of the tour. I, I had, uh, had, had had the wherewithal to say, I want to double track my guitar. I had learned that much from it. And um, one of my best friends in college, John Drenning, who played in Buffalo bands like uh, uh, New Balance and Zero Tolerance, um, he we, we both had the same model of Les Paul. Uh, and so he lent me his, uh, are, are they sounded slightly different because they had different pickups in them, but I did what I tracked all the guitar with my guitar and all the guitar with John's guitar. Uh, and we we're pretty happy with how it turned out, but for, and there had been some talk about maybe doing it as a split release with Amanda Mackay's label Sandwich which had put out early Swizz and uh, early Shudder to Think. But uh, all of that kind of fell through because um, a number of things happened really quickly for us. One, I think somehow, and I don't remember the details of this, Idols did, I don't think that the recording was paid for, like the, the, that we had won from this contest. That's the first thing that happened. The second thing that happened was uh, Ed Scales, our drummer, you know, his primary love was reggae music and he just didn't want to play hardcore anymore. And so he was wanted to leave the band after the recording session. Um, and then the third thing that happened was singer Tom Mesmer. Uh, he had been working full time. The rest of us had been in college. Tom had not. 
And Tom decided uh, like it was, he was going to go back to school and I believe at University of Buffalo. We at first, uh, and so the end result of all that was we abandoned the recording. Uh, we didn't pay for it. We left the reels there. Fast forward 20, 25 years. And uh, uh, one of the heroes of this story, Rob Filardo, is walk, uh, walking down the street and sees that the studio has gone out of business. There's all this stuff in a dumpster at the curb, and he sees in there a reel that's labeled Hunger Artist Jesus. Untitled. And Rob uh, rescued that reel. Uh, he shared digital tracks of it with the band, and he eventually got the, the reels to Tom. Uh, and then more recently, a, uh, an acquaintance of the hippie core folks uh, who put out that Who Changed 7-Inch said, hey, uh, a friend of ours who has this label in Chicago called Rabbit Rabbit wants to know, if, was there an unreleased final hunger artist record? Sure enough, we got in touch with him. He got the reels. He brought them to Bob Weston's, uh, what, the Chicago Recording Company or Chicago Engineering and they managed to sort of uh, rehabilitate the ta the original reels, and it sounds fucking great. I, I, I couldn't believe what they'd done with it. So that's like something out of a movie, though. That he's just at the right yeah. place at the right time and looks into the dumpster and sees his friends' bands. Like it's not like they had like fifty copies of those. Like that was it, right? Rob really, Rob Filardo really is our our historian. He's been the wow. catalyst for, for remember, like the, there's a Rochester Hardcore 86 to 90 Facebook page. He's very he, over the that. years, And over the years, even him just saying, hey, who played the show? Or hey, what do you remember about this? Or who has flyers? Has sort of just jogged memories and gotten people looking through old boxes and drawers, which is, you know, uh, I, you know, thank you, Rob, uh, uh, for, for a lot of stuff. But, you know, him being like that catalyst, like, and somebody caring after all these years uh, um, when it seemed like nobody did. And like someone thinking this is worthwhile. And uh, I really appreciate that. So, and take that seriously. So we don't have a release date on that yet, but um, Josh, I'll, I'll, when I, I've sent you some things for the, for the show notes, including the Rabbit Rabbit Records link for that, maybe we can once that comes out, we can come back and talk some more uh, about that. Yeah, um, definitely. You you mentioned John today, and you mentioned him before too. Uh, Greg and I definitely plan on getting him on here uh, either next month or the month after to talk about whatever he didn't get a chance to talk about in Nickel City. So that should be a good time. And obviously, I, I would definitely want to have Rob on here at some point whenever we get the the yeah. chance. Because as I said, Tom is he, probably someone who would be a phenomenal guest too. Yeah. Um, yep. And Timogen. Yeah, well, the Timogen will be phenomenal. Sure. I, I, like I, like I told you when we were talking before, I know that he lived here in the late '80s. I don't know if I still have it, but didn't he do a fanzine called uh, No Edge? Uh, in no the Edge. 80s? I, ha I have an issue of No Edge sitting around here somewhere. Yeah, I'm sure. I hope he has the rest of them. Um, yeah, when jo when but... John Hall had the the first, I don't know if it, I think it was Ultrasonic Sound when it was first opened on Monroe Avenue. Yeah, I bought. He had yes. a bunch of old fanzines there, and I bought one. And my friend Ben and I, who I got into hardcore with here we were just like floored by the fact that it was a zine that he had done. We didn't even know he lived here at all. And the fact that he roadied with you guys too, like he would obviously be a, a real good piece of the puzzle to have on here and talk about all that stuff. And you know, the distro that he did and stuff too. So. Hunger artist would not have survived that tour without, um, without Timogen. 
uh, without a doubt. Um, uh, one, one, one of my heroes. Yeah. Was he the only roadie you guys had for that tour? Just him and then, and then the band? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I know you ended up moving to DC eventually. Is there, was there any other bands after Hunger Artists or did you just kind of like pack up and get ready for uh, grad school at that point? So after Hunger Artist, um, well, while Hunger Artist was still going on, there was a time where we thought we might replace Ed with another drummer. And we taught uh, my old, old friend, uh, Zach Barocas. Uh, he learned all of the drum lines and we recorded, uh, we, he, he basically learned the Hunger Artist set. And, uh, and then Tom went back to school and we kind of just decided that we didn't want to have yet another, like replacing the drummer and a singer and keeping the name. Like I can't appreciate and love say like Mark E. Smith saying, if it's your grandma on bongos and me, it's the fall. Uh, but uh, you know, hunger artist was not that. And so we decided let's just take the new music we're working on and uh, make a new band. We eventually, uh, hooked up with John Schoen, who had been playing. He's someone you have to talk to John Schoen. He was in, um, he, he's been in a long time musician in the band Pengo. Uh, but before uh, he had, in the eighties, he was in a band called Solution. Uh, amazing, <laughs> blazing band. Um, but uh, John joined us on vocals. So Carl from Hunger Artist and myself with Zach Brokus on drums became Powerline. Um, and there is a Powerline Bandcamp with our recordings on it. Um, we uh, Powerline played a lot of shows with bands like uh, Jawbox, Doughboys, and Shudder to Think, Vision, um, and uh, we. Uh, the demise of the band of essentially was that uh, we had embarked on a mini tour with Shudder to Think, and our van broke. Uh, died completely, stranding us in New Jersey for a week. Uh, and this was a sort of a, a spring break from school, from college. Uh, and then Zach ended up moving to the DC area and then joining Jawbox. Uh, so, and he, uh, amongst other bands, I think Jawbox is still the one that that's, he's probably best known for. Um, but he's played in other bands such as the Up On In and, and Bells. Um, and then after Powerline, uh, I, I tried, Carl and I tried getting a few things going that were really good, but nothing really stuck. And I can remember distinctly Carl and I driving in the car and listening to the radio and hearing, hey, there's this new band out of uh, Seattle, Washington, and they played Smells Like Teen Spirit. And we looked at each other and we we're like, I think I'm done. <laughs> I, I, that was kind of like, uh, I Nirvana are fine. Uh, it's great, wonderful. But I, I kind of felt like maybe I want to go back to school as well. And that was kind of a catalyst for me. Just I was sort of like I just was feeling like the world changing around me in a weird kind of way. Uh, and uh, that's when I, I got into the University of Maryland at College Park for creative writing, and I had a, a teaching fellowship uh there so i moved to dc um and have lived here ever since uh, i was out of music for a long time uh and eventually in 2000 2008 i uh stopped playing guitar and started playing bass 
taught myself how to play bass. Uh, again, that through line in my life of the Minutemen, I think I learned like 150 Firehose or Minutemen songs. Uh, I just, I didn't want to play with a pick. I, and like Mike Watt was really my model for bass playing. Uh, I ended up hooking up with um, Chris Hamley from the band Circus Lupus and the Mon Orchid and Vin Novara from the band uh, Crown Hate Ruin. Uh, and we formed Alarms and Controls and released two records that were half releases on Discord. Uh, after that, I was in a two bass instrumental band called Number Station. And I'm currently playing bass uh, in a band called Continuals. And all those band, uh, Continuals has, and Number Station has music on, on Bandcamp I can share with you. Uh, Continuals just recorded an LP with Jay Robbins. Uh, uh, we're still sort of working on um, some of the vocals uh, and some other things of it. But that band I'm really excited about um, um, playing with like just one of my very favorite drummers on earth. I've been so lucky that I've gotten to play in bands with such great drummers uh, like uh, Vin Novara and Zach Barocas and Ed Scales. And uh, in Continuals, I get to play with Darren Zentek, who was in Kerosene 454 and um, oh, uh, Office of Future Plans. Um, uh, and just, just a wonderful drummer and human. Uh, and the singer and guitarist is uh, Ryan Nelson, who's also just a wonderful singer, guitarist, and human. Uh, and he was in The Most Secret Method and Soccer Team. So just exciting just to be in my 50s and still playing in a van, loading up stuff and, and at it. Uh, so I, I guess that sort of makes me a, a lifer. <laughs> So COVID willing, like, were you, were you like still playing shows with these bands and stuff or? So we are, are uh, before COVID hit, we had uh, hoped to play our first show um, uh, and then COVID happened and it's just been one setback after another and none of us have felt comfortable enough to go back to be, to play shows since. So let's just hope that things clear up and ease up a bit. Uh, I don't think it's worth anyone risking their fucking lives to come see uh, this band play or any band for, for that matter. Uh, um, but uh, so for now, like we recorded much of the band camp recordings remotely where Darren would send a beat to Ryan. Ryan would write a guitar line, send it to me. I'd write a bass line, send it back, you know, just plugged into my laptop uh, with my bass and uh, it was nice when we had that respite some months ago after the, in, in, uh, after the first round of vaccines where we were able to comfortably get back into it, get our set together and record with Jay. Um, I'm excited for people to hear that. I'm not sure when that's going to be done, but uh, um, uh, I hope we'll be able to play shows soon. And circling back to, to John Schoen, it, it's funny because yeah. my friend Ben that I had referenced before that I got into hardcore with, we always kind of joke around because like most people like they get into hardcore when they're young and then they get into like garage and like indie rock as they get older. But in like 95, when we got into all this stuff, like the scene here was more like indie and like garage bands, like, like John Schoen was in the shop class squares at the time. And I got the chance to see them play a bunch of times. So that was, that was great just to see, like, it, it felt like he was still kind of doing like, like a hardcore band the way he would like have his stage presence and stuff like that. And mm -hmm. I got to bend his ear a little bit and kind of learn about like the, the eighties hardcore scene from him. So it'd be really cool to, to get him on here and, 
and here his experiences obviously you know so yeah um but kind of where i'm going with that with the whole like you know getting into hardcore when you're younger than getting into different music as you get older like have you have you been able to keep up with hardcore at all or have you just kind of like done different stuff as you've gotten you know uh, it's it's so hard to keep up with much of anything um uh, I, and so i, I like when I came here in the '90s for grad school, uh, I, I I just sort of wanted to expand my ears a bit, and sort of got into uh, uh, a lot of like African music and jazz, um, a little bit of classical here and there, um, and I, I I love all of it. Uh, you know, there's very little music out there. You know, I I really don't listen to country and western, uh, and I, I really don't listen to opera, and I really don't listen to like metal. I'm not 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 much of a metal dude unless it's like Sabbath or Corrosion of Conformity, uh, you know, side two of uh, of my war. Uh, that that's that's about as heavy as I get. But that's pretty fucking heavy. Uh, there's I, I I things here and there hit me a certain way. Uh, um, I think maybe because of my age, I, I get exposed more to things that friends or acquaintances are doing. So like say like anything that Sean Brown. Uh, from Swizz uh, um, that he's doing, you know, he has a band with uh, Jason Farrell called Red Hair. Um, like that's my jam. That's awesome. Uh, uh, but like that, some some of that is just more what I'm exposed to. Or like, like I love the Linda Lindas. You know, it's like like just so like super like pop punk that just sort of reminds me. Like the just like I just love that there are kids. Uh, doing this you know i guess it's like that that scottish band mogwai has that album titled hardcore will never die but you will uh and i i i i, I embrace that <laughs> hey, it's funny you should mention that because i like I, i'm not sure if you're familiar with the book american hardcore um but like i read that years ago oh, yeah. and, and, and the, 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 book? Yeah. yeah yeah the vibe i get from that is that he kind of thinks that hardcore died in like the late 80s or whatever which i kind of get to that to a certain extent but like I feel like even if you're not into the scene, you still like have to acknowledge the fact that there are people that have like kept it alive and, and there as Greg referenced before, there will be people in forty years that will be doing something there's, like this, we're certain. Like, I, I think there's continuity to it too. I, and I get that like scenes can can rise and fall and, and subside and grow, but there's continuity to all of it. And I don't know how much what you, Michael, were doing with hunger artists influenced or paved the way for the bands, the local bands in Rochester that I liked and still love. Um, mm -hmm. But to some degree it, it did because, you know, I know there's people like Jim Callahan who, you know, when oh, yeah. he was getting into hardcore, he was on the younger side and Hunger Artist was more established and he's, you know, been very active all throughout. And, uh, you know, there's, there's, if you guys weren't doing that, if you weren't, talking to record shops and having them, you know, carry the, the albums and the zines. And if you weren't calling radio stations, I don't know, maybe there wouldn't, maybe there wouldn't be a critical mass of people. So thank mm -hmm. you. I think, yeah, right on, man. I think, you know, like, I, I remember Mike Watt in an interview talking about like people like being like, Oh, I missed out on something that happened in the past. But like, really the truth is it's like, what's new is always what you bring to it. Um, and like anyone who says like hardcore doesn't exist anymore, I, or like 
Of course it does. You're just not hearing about it because it's underground. Uh, it's, uh, um, and I'm, I'm confident of that and I'm super psyched about that. I guess for <laughs> me, there's one of the great thinkers that I like to read about and, and, you know, compare my life to is Carl Jung. Um, mm -hmm. And he, I, I'm going to butcher it, but he has this kind of this, this quote or this, this bit of insight that he had, um, you know, he was an academic, but he also got out and traveled and lived with people from other cultures and in their, you know, unique environments. And he went to Africa to live with and uh, see how people were living in a certain location there. And as a part of his visit, the, the village had, um, you know, in, engaged in some kind of like music and dance ritual where there was like drumming and chanting and people were dancing and, and it became more and more frenzied until like the whole village was just kind of like this swirling mass of people just all doing this wild chant. And, and, and he said something, I'm paraphrasing, but you know, like I knew he said something to the effect that was like, I knew if I joined them, I wouldn't go back to my life in Switzerland, that I would stay here because this is all there is. Like, this is all you really need. And mm. to me, I've experienced that in like the pylon, like singing along with hardcore <laughs> bands in the mosh pit. Like, that's what it is. And I'm, I guess on some level, I'm being a little bit facetious here, but on another level, I'm not. Like, there's nothing else out there that, that is like singing along with a band you love when they're sincere and authentic and you know you you're buying into that same authenticity mm -hmm. and sincerity so that's that's why i know this will always exist because yeah. there's always going to be people who need that release or who who need that communal uh, ritual to kind of make it through the day the week the month the year the life for me hardcore punk was my entry into the arts Really, that's where I got some kind of a of, of a toehold, and I can that inspiration that you're talking about. I can also feel that like hard, hardcore punk got me in touch with people who are painting and who are writing, who are poets, dancers, you know. And so the some of the inspiration I can get from like a contemporary painting or dance, um, you know, uh, literature that people. People are doing and like anything that people are doing and making themselves. Uh, like I, I'm there in support of it. Uh, you know, I, I would love for there to be instead of it just being like, hey, uh, another five band bill. Like I've, my dream has always been like like bringing in other things, like playing in an art museum uh, or like mixing a uh, a poetry reading with a hardcore show. Uh, just you know, and and good poetry. <laughs> one thing, <laughs> you know? one thing that that like that touches upon that though, that I don't know if you've ever seen that like viral video meme clip of a hardcore band just showing up and playing a bona fide hardcore show at a Denny's. Awesome. <laughs> I haven't, but that's I don't think they like cleared it with the management or anything, but there was just like, you know, 75 kids in a hardcore band in a, in a smoking room at a Denny's. I love it. Yeah. I've seen that um, video before. Um, I don't, I don't really have too many notes left for the interview. I'm, not, I'm sure you probably have a pile left, so I'm sure we'll do a part two at some point, whether it's with you again solo or, or bring on Tom too. But one thing I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that I learned today that I shared with you guys, and you kind of made me think of him again earlier when you referenced Fela earlier, is I have like one of my best friends outside of hardcore, Colin. Um, he's into like all sorts of different kinds of music like that, and he, he introduced me to a lot of stuff. And I'm guessing that he probably got into some of that music through your brother, Bob. 
mm. which was just odd. It's just odd to me that I didn't put that connection with the last name until today that you guys have the same last name. Yeah. And I was like, mm-hmm. you said Brighton and, and I'm pretty sure Bob went to McQuaid too. So I was like, That's you right. guys have to be yep. related. And it's just such a small world to think of something like that. But I guess where I'm going with that is as you've kind of expanded your taste musically, like do you guys have more in common to talk about with music and stuff or like we do and I, I like i'm so happy that like like my brother like turned me on to some like weird 70s jazz that i'd never heard before um a bass player i can't I'm blanking on the name but yeah um that uh he was always more into maybe sort of the more hippie grateful dead end of things uh, uh which is not my world at all <laughs> uh, uh but i think w- w- our meeting place seems to be uh like avant-garde jazz so right on <laughs> Yeah, I'm pretty sure if I remember correctly, he had a pretty ridiculous Grateful Dead Live uh, tape collection back in the day, and I'm sure he still does. So I never, I never got into those guys either, but I respected like the community aspect of Grateful Dead, like people like him yeah. that could come together. But the music was just not for me, obviously. So, um, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, no, like I said, we'll definitely have to do a part two for this at some point. Um, but is there anything else that we didn't touch on that you would want to touch on for part one, I guess, or? I don't think so. I, I this has been such a pleasure and uh, to talking with you guys and sort of looking forward to like hearing other folks uh, if possible. And now you know, like just checking out the other recordings that you have of of uh, people involved with the scene after I left town. So that's really cool. Greg, did you have anything else that you wanted to add to the conversation? Yeah, thanks. We... Um, yeah, you can visit visit and follow Rochester Hardcore History on Instagram. Uh, from there, you'll also find links out uh, to the SoundCloud page where I I have just hundreds of songs from Rochester bands uh, digitized. Um, if you have any old show flyers or recordings, uh, whether they're digitized or analog, I can help uh, digitize them. Um, reach out through the Rochester Hardcore History Instagram. Um, I'm always looking for more stuff. I, I truthfully, uh, I, I'm very heavy on kind of the enterprise era of Rochester Hardcore, and I have a little bit from Michael and Tom, um, who've been very helpful in connecting me with people from the 80s and early 90s. And, you know, I have uh, uh, Jim Callahan, who I've mentioned, who's helped out getting stuff from the 90s and uh, onward. And, and I, I could also use some stuff from the, you know, 2010 onward. So reach out. Um, if your band isn't on there and you won't want to see it, let me know. I'll feature it. And, uh, Michael, I happen to see my email when we were starting this. It looks like you already sent me a bunch of links to include with the show notes, uh, for this episode. Yeah. Too. Right on. Yeah. Perfect. So I'll make sure to include all that. So I think this is going to wrap up episode 54 for now though. I, I want to thank Michael and Greg for taking the time to do this episode with me. Uh, everyone else who's been helping out with the podcast, like Rob and Jim, um, and just Rochester Hardcore in general is, is pretty strong. Um, I want to thank my family for all the support. Uh, see everyone real soon and stay safe.